Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is sponsored by the Law Office of Chapak & Associates, criminal defense attorneys with over 170 years of experience. The truth must be won, and the attorneys of Chapak & Associates are ready for battle. Yes, and welcome to, again to Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy uh, with your host, Ben Siders. That's me, and the man sitting across from me is Kirk Damon. Kirk, say hi. Hi, and that's Kirk as in the captain of the Enterprise. Yes, indeed. Uh, today's topic is language. We're going to talk about who owns the uh, Klingon language or uh, the Sindarin language. Uh, this is actually a sort of cutting-edge legal issue because it bleeds over from, from fictional languages into more practical languages like programming languages. Yeah, it's actually an issue that's... Uh, sort of become very popular in law recently partially because of the fact there's been questions on this but it just now has actually started being taken up by the court and there are two cases currently working their way through the court systems on exactly who does own language and whether or not there's copyright in language. And this came up I think last year was it? There was a big case involving uh, the Java programming language APIs and whether that's copyrightable and so the, the Supreme Court has addressed this recently. Um, so, But our focus today is going to be more on what we're going to call made up languages by which means we mean designed or constructed languages yeah. as opposed to naturally emerging languages. The law oftentimes refers to them as art languages. Um, it's a line that you seem to see thrown around a lot, which I think is actually a bit misleading. Because I think, you know, an art language, you kind of imply something almost like it's it's a like stylized script or something like that. But that seems to be a language that gets thrown around a lot as opposed to programming language. But I think a lot of people think of more as a functional language. I think the reason they try to do that is because they're trying to get away from the term functional for good reason um, when they're talking about copyright. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's an entrenched doctrine in copyright that copyright does not cover things that are functional or designs that are functional. We'll we'll get into that in a second. So uh, there's there's a lot of of good examples of these kind of languages. Klingon, which I mentioned at the outset, yep. is probably the most obvious and well developed one. But there's also the the Elvish language yep. from Lord of the and Rings. Dwarvish. Uh, and Dwarvish, which is I think is less developed than Elvish yep. in the in the books. Uh, there's the Navi language from Avatar, Dothraki from Game of Thrones, and some of these even have their own unique uh, alphabets or glyph sets. Yep, yeah. There's I mean I think the the introduction of language is a very common thing we've seen in science fiction and actually more in fantasy I think even than fan- science fiction, just because it's a very useful way I think for an author to come through and express that hey there's somebody speaking in a foreign language. I mean we see foreign languages everywhere. I mean there's foreign languages with. Um, what you hear Jabba the Hutt speaking in Return of the Jedi. You know, it's kind of like pig Latin, um, yeah. but, you know, you get into those kind of things with it. Um, so, I mean, you see these kind of languages all over, and oftentimes the subtitles, and then a lot of times they switch out of the language and switch to, to English, but to point out the fact that the person is speaking a foreign language. Well, it's, it's useful in fantasy, too, because establishing these fictional languages is a good a good world-building exercise, and, you know, fantasy literature is nothing if not world-building. Yep. And, uh, and these languages tend to take on a life of their own when they get popularized. So there was an episode of of The Office, uh, if you've seen that show, uh, where Dwight tries to teach uh, the secretary how to speak Dothraki. She doesn't realize it's a fictional language. Uh, and uh, the Klingon is probably the best example. I just checked on Amazon before we sat down to record. There's actually a Klingon translation of Hamlet that you can buy on Amazon.com. <laughs> how appropriate. How appropriate, indeed, yeah. So, uh, you know, and uh, so by way of background, the, the Klingon language was... I, th- I think not that well developed. I'm not an expert on this area by any means, but I think Klingon didn't really get developed that well until like the mid-90s. I think Scotty, James Doohan in the original series developed some, some short phrases. 
And then um, another guy, I think Mark Orkin was his name, really did the the real heavy lifting on developing the language and the syntax and and how that works. And all that, I think, was pretty clearly done under the auspices of Paramount. So so those sort of core elements are are more clearly owned by them. Uh, But then you have, uh, for example, the Amazon.com publication of... Klingon Shakespeare. C- can you do that or not? And that's the, the question we're going to really dig into today. And, and as with so many of these issues, it really boils down to primarily copyright, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, I think we're basically talking copyright in conjunction with this. I mean, there's arguably some trademark principles that get into here. Um, and the idea of the association of a language, you know, with a particular, um, you know, owner or particular property, something like that. But I don't think most people associate the language in particular with that. You know, they associate the concept uh, maybe in conjunction conjunction with it. So I really think we're mostly talking about copyright here. And that seems to be the recognition in the legal community too, is that really when we're talking about language, we're getting into copyright principles. Yeah, and I think this the the issue of what the language is called, that, I think that might have come up in the the Java case. And I want to say the Supreme Court in that case said that the, lang- the name of the language itself is not a trademark, or it's not trademarkable because it's just the generic description of the language, just like English is the name of English. It's the generic description yeah. of what it is. And Elvish would be Elvish, and Klingon would be Klingon. So that I think is, they've addressed that and said that's just the de- generic identifier and there's no copy or no trademark in that. Yeah. That is one of the problems I think you get into with language is language has this unique sort of piece of it that it's describing other things using its own words, but the things it's describing all exist. Now, they may be fictional concepts. You know, when you're talking about something like Klingon, we may be talking about, you know, a trial by combat that doesn't exist naturally. Um, but the idea of you talking about that these are mostly describing sort of the natural world, describing things that exist, um, and they're also, and, and this is, I think, is going to get right at where we're going with this episode, they're also completely unique. They're made up words. They're things that are made up in conjunction with this. They're oftentimes completely made up in the, even in the way they appear. Yeah, and let's let's talk about a little bit what we mean when we say language. So languages have a lot of components. Obviously, yep. um, you've got uh, syntax and and typography. You've got uh, just the the made up words and the, what they stand for. And you've got rules that sort of govern the grammatical structure of the language, which I guess is sort of like syntax. Yep. And all those things, the the law kind of I think plays out differently, don't you think? Yeah, and I think the other thing to keep in mind as well, you've also got written language and you've got spoken language, and That's the fact that you have you know sounds as well associated with this. Many of those sounds are not something that necessarily is specifically represented by the, the the written language. You know, you can have a symbol which indicates a particular sound which has no connection to it other than the language. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of pieces when it comes into language, many of which, I mean, you can almost look at it as mathematical rules or sort of rule oh, sets sure. associated with it. But other ones are, you know, completely made up, sounds, symbols, words, concepts, whatever we want to sort of look in conjunction with them. The other thing with it is, is you have to wonder how much of this is truly made up. You look across languages, across you know current languages, languages out of ancient history, a lot of the syntax is probably going to come out of existing languages. A lot of these may share concepts with English. They may share concepts with other languages. You know, the example is being like gendered nouns. Mm-hmm. Not something we necessarily use in, in English, but something which is very common, common in a lot of other languages. languages yep. For sure. Yeah, and you see this you see this play out really in Lord of the Rings, I think, a lot. The all, all of the languages in those stories, which if you haven't read them, you should, or you, if you haven't read them yet. Why are you listening to this <laughs> podcast if you haven't listened, if you haven't read them yet? Uh, but if, if you read them, you'll you'll notice that like the the horsemen all have a sort of northern European feel to it. Uh, the uh, the the evil guys Mordor yep. is sort of Germanic, maybe Teutonic. Teutonic might be more accurate, yeah. I think. Germanic's kind. Of, I mean, they don't have that tribal feel that you right. get more. I mean, there's definitely like a cultural flavor attached to all of 
of these things. And, yep. and, and just the look and the feel of the cultures reflect that. Let's, let's dig into copyright a little bit. So copyright at its core uh, is concerned with protecting expressive and creative works. And I think yep. it would be hard to argue that, that a constructed language is not both expressive and creative, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a pretty good argument that it is. Now, interestingly, some other you know attorneys have evaluated this, and there's been some publications on it. And one of the questions really was, is it sufficient? They said that you know this hasn't necessarily been examined enough as to whether or not it does really have sort of sufficient expressive work uh, to be constructed because of the fact that it is created around rules. If you think about it, in many respects— You can't respects, copyright rules. Yeah, you can't copyright rules. If you think about it, in many respects, a, a language is nothing other like— it, take the English language, for example. It's 26 letters. It's relatively short. Mm-hmm. And then a few rules to put them together. Recognizing the rules are probably not copyrightable. Same way as the rules of a game are not necessarily copyrightable. Um, you bump into this. Is there really sufficient expression? Well, let's get into the, the specific elements. So let's start with, I think, is the, the lowest hanging fruit. The lettering or the glyph set that makes up the language. So if you've ever seen, just Google uh, Elvish Lord of the Rings and you'll find there's a whole glyph set. It's very pretty. It's very uh, graceful. It's what you'd associate with an elf-like culture. Well, Particularly a Tolkien, holder. particularly a, a Tolkien elf or, or Klingon. Have you ever seen that? It, it looks like it looks like my four year old uh, scrawled something out of my wall with a crayon. <laughs> it's it's very uh, uh, tribal and uh, harsh, harsh, primitive looking. Maybe um, very very much matches the Klingon uh, culture. So those are those are obviously artistic creations. They're symbols that didn't exist before. Uh, they're kind of arbitrarily chosen by whoever developed the glyph set. Uh, you can copyright a font. Which you know usually is reflective of an existing alphabet, so yep. it seems logical to me those things can be copyrighted. It would seem like yeah, the the, the glyph set should be copyrightable. I mean, the the big issue I think you bump into with it is though is one could look at a glyph set and say ultimately it's a tool. Um, you can't necessarily copyright a specific pigment of paint. Mm-hmm. You can trademark it, but you can't specifically copyright it. That's a tool for making paintings. A glyph set is arguably a tool for making language. Um, so yeah, I think we have our first problem actually yeah. you know, looking into this. Maybe the idea expression dichotomy comes in here too so so copyright is concerned with protecting expression yep. but you cannot copyright an idea that's so correct. you know what is the idea expressed by let's start with a, a font which is simpler just a, a latin based font the underlying idea is just the alphabet yep. and the expression is the particular arrangement of serifs or, or the omission of serifs or or uh, you know whatever you're going to do to the lettering that's the particular expression that's copyrightable but you don't have any right to the underlying letters themselves obviously yep. yeah i think it, it makes sense and let's just drop back a little bit when you talk about the idea of the you express in dichotomy um, that it's an important distinction in copyright and it's something that gets in really respects to the core of copyright the example being is there can be a copyright in Romeo and Juliet there can also be a copyright in all of the various movies, Titanic, you know, t- Titanic, um, you know, stories, everything that basically shares the same plot with Romeo and Juliet. The idea that you know you have the star-crossed lovers that usually end up dying in the end. Um, you can have copyrights in each specific expression of that. So, like West Side Story has a copyright in oh, yeah, it. Oh, that's a good one. Um, but you don't necessarily, you can't necessarily, can you actually can't copyright the specifics the concept, of right. that idea of the star-crossed lovers of something going together. And that's a very, very important distinction in copyright. And many times, the determination of whether or not something's covered by copyright comes down to exactly that question. Is it an idea or is it an expression? And we're already seeing that. That's where we're now going already with language is this very core question. We're already there, just talking about the glyphs. So with a Klingon font, what's the underlying idea that would not be protectable? 
And that's, I think, the, the first problem you get into. One, one can say it's a language. It's arguably the same as English. It's any other idea and sort of in, in the concept with it. I think the problem you bump into with Klingon is, you know, yeah, the glyph is created. It's something that's completely original in conjunction with it. But you bump into the problem. There's no other way to express it. Yeah. What are the underlying phonetics? And does it, I mean, does it have to ma- ma- match up to like an existing language? Yeah. It's, it's a really strange, <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange uh, conundrum. Yeah. Because it's, if you get into the idea of a pure font, we look at it and say, okay, it's a font that's used to express English. It's a font that's used to express German. That same font could be used on any existing language, which utilizes a similar alphabet. Yeah. Any Latin alphabet. It'll any work. Latin alphabet. And so we jump into the idea where it's very clear to say, okay, there's an expression because that is an expression of the underlying Latin alphabet. When you get into something like Klingon or a unique language, you bump into the fact of how do you actually express it without utilizing the font? Because those are specific to it and specifically created to it. And I, I think the answer to that is, is that you can just Latinize it the same way that you do uh, Asian or, or Eastern European languages mm-hmm. where there's, there's various rules or, or techniques. And you've, I've seen it online. There is a Latinized Klingon, which to me is indecipherable. It just looks like <laughs> a bunch of N's and, and uh, you know, you know vowel-less uh, syllables. But it, it can be done, right? So as, as people making, say, fan fiction or writing Hamlet in Klingon, you could get around that by just writing it out phonetically in some way. Yeah, I think that's the thing. And, and let's get into an even more sort of, you know, truly glyph-based language. Let's use a real language. How about hieroglyphics? And let's talk about ancient Egyptian here. Or Mesoamerican languages. Mesoamerican languages, which are very, very glyph-based. Um, the glyphs oftentimes mean sounds. They oftentimes mean concepts. You know, you can bump into um, all sorts of, you know, things along those lines. There are ways to make them, you know, ultimately translated into English, even to the extent they're sounds. I and mean, we all know the pharaoh's names, you know, which is already a translation of sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you get into that type of idea that says is part of what the Klingon language is, is that you could express this phonetically. You can't use the glyphs, maybe, because the glyphs are copyrightable, but could you express it phonetically? The big issue with that, and and that's where I think we're going, is if if you can express it phonetically, the spoken language uses no glyphs. Yeah, so then what are you infringing? Yep, so now we bump into a second problem, which is the spoken versus the... Because you, uh, you can't establish a copyright unless the thing copyrighted is in a fixed medium somehow from which it can be reproduced. Yep. Right? So just the concept of this syllable or this this spoken sound is attached to these words, I, I don't think there's any copyright subsisting in that. Yeah, and that's, that's a really interesting question. We're now bumping into it because now we're looking at it as we're splitting the spoken language from the written language and we're saying there may be a copyright in this written language, but there's no copyright in the spoken language language potentially because of this sort of idea of a glyph copyright. If we're looking at the idea that there's copyright in the glyphs and saying the particular appearance of it, those glyphs mean sounds. Those sounds are utterable presumably by most human beings. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, they may make sounds that are truly non-utterable. I mean, there's known languages that only certain people can pronounce if they were born. That was the whole thing with the Lovecraftian mythos, right? That that Cthulhu is a a clumsy human translation of a language that we can't otherwise pronounce. Yeah. Um, And and again, I think the, the thing you get into is even in real languages, there are people who cannot speak certain real languages. Yeah, I can't roll my R's in Spanish. Yeah, um, <laughs> and things like that. And particularly, you know, when you talk about pronunciation of languages like Chinese, very complex languages, there can be, the, you can get into this kind of dichotomy that now says, well, can we actually generate a fictional language which only certain people could pronounce? So what, what would Paramount own here? So I'm thinking of like in Deep Space Nine, I think, is where you first saw a lot of Klingon language really spoken, and maybe Star Trek Three, I think, had a lot. I, I think Next Generation also could have been in if I remember correctly, because yeah. of Worf. So whatever, la- whatever lines are spoken in Klingon in those movies, those are fixed in a tangible medium where yep. you could you could play them back, obviously, because we've seen them all. Uh, so Paramount owns copyrights to you know those 
elements of those films, yep. but could you not take those syllables apart and, or, or said another way, if I walk out into the street and start reciting those lines, have I infringed a copyright? Yeah, now, I mean, there becomes an interesting question. Um, and part <laughs> public, of it's because... Public performance. Yeah, public performance. You also have issues of exactly how much of the work are you taking. We're getting into fair use principles. And as I think we, we may have mentioned previously on the show, I do, the only thing we're going to bump into, you're probably going to encounter fair use principles a lot on the show. The reason being is because we can probably do 17 episodes on fair use. Oh, yeah. And we probably um, will. And, and we may very well, you know, before this is over, or at least touching on fair use. Let's move up a unit. Let's, let's move from letters to words. What, what do you think about copywriting, like the made-up word of a language. Now, that one's, to me, even more interesting in some ways, because if I just make up a word and say this word means approximately this concept in English, yep. um, you know, as a general rule, you can't usually trademark a word by itself like that. because You can't copyright it. You can't copyright it. We're not using the word in connection with any goods or services. It's not like I have Kapla brand, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, what, what protection would it subsist in a manufactured word to stand for something I don't know. Yeah, and there's the thing that I think you get into with this is copyright generally has acknowledged that you can't get copyright in words or short phrases. Yeah, usually not. People have repeatedly tried to you know get copyright protection in sort of particularly famous words, particularly famous phrases. I think the shortest copyright I ever heard of is the Happy Birthday song, which has like six words. Yeah, but it's also four lines, and it, yeah, you know, and there's a melody that goes yeah. with it, and yeah. you know, so you've got a lot of things like that. But generally, they've said a sentence is not long enough for copyright protection. So we're talking about an individual word, we're talking about an individual sentence that's generally not short, short and that's too short for copyright protection. Now, that may be infringible because that may be considered part of a larger work. So the example would be is you may be able to to get infringement of a sentence of Hamlet, to use as an example, for using a particular phrase from it because the fact that it's a portion of a larger work which is subject to copyright as opposed to getting a copyright in the individual phrase. Mm -hmm. What you're bumping into, and I think this is the thing that we're talking about with the idea of the Klingon language becoming more and more um, sort of refined as it goes on in time, the initial presentations of Klingon language were single words, were single phrases that were designed to have a particular meaning in the concept of the show. And very narrow. Like, it's and, all focused on battle and space technology. Yep. There's, not a lot, there's not a good Klingon word for, like, um, yeah. you know, a chicken curry. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be... I'm not sure they have chicken curry in Klingon. That would be probably very spicy. <laughs> but, yeah, I think the, uh, the thing you bump into um, in conjunction with this sort of analysis is one can look at it and say that copying that particular phrase could be a copyright infringement of the show episode to the extent yeah. that it's a component of it. But we're now looking at it and saying, how about an individual word? So let's say we take the the phrase is, you know, something along the lines of I I am doing this. If somebody was to then reconjugate it to I am not doing this, mm-hmm. that is not the same phrase. It has a contrary meaning. Um, now it uses most of the same words. One can think about very quickly that you can reorganize the words to potentially have a completely different meaning. Um, and then if you prepared a derivative sense. word, probably is the question at that point. Yep. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't challenge that Paramount owns the you know the lines of text and Klingon from the films, but then you know I think a lot of the language has probably been developed outside of Paramount's oversight. Yeah, and, correct. Um, you know, so so what happens to those pieces that are developed by the fan community yep. that get published as like a Klingon dictionary? I, I found a Klingon to English. Uh, tra- I tried to title this show "Is <laughs> this copyright infringement in Klingon?" So I went to the Klingon translator and typed it in, and it gave me a bunch of Klingon and then the words "copyright infringement in English." So. <laughs> So the, the the lexicon is not all that all that robust at this point. At least um, not according to machine translation. No. So are, are the words of a language? Maybe they're more equivalent to just the facts of a language, and, and yep. facts generally by themselves are not copyrightable. Yeah. Well, I think you also hit on a very important fact here, and something else to talk about in conjunction with this, which is use a translator. 
there's a recognition in copyright about translation of works. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually is a specific concept of the fact that there can be separate copyrights in translations of works um, above and beyond the copyright owned by the original holder. But the translated work may still infringe the work mm -hmm. of the original holder. So when we talk about the idea of like that using copyright infringement and you know, the particular word doesn't exist in Cleon, if you were to then come up with a word, one could argue at its base core, it's a translation, yeah. which still entitles you to separate copyright. Now the problem is, is that that entitles you as the creator of that translation into the copyright of that translation, but you made up the word. So mm -hmm. now we're bumping into, what about the person who owns the copyrights potentially in the rest of the words? I think what we're getting here, and, and I think a lot of what we're trying to get at with this show, is this is really complicated. It really is. And it's it's been addressed, although I don't have any good decisions on this, in the Axonar case. Yep. Um, that case settled, so we really don't know how the law would shake out. But if, if you're not familiar with it, uh, Axonar is the name of you know, basically a, a large-budget fan-made uh, Trek film uh, funded and... Yeah, it's and actually, it was Star Trek Prelude to Axanar and then a feature film yeah. titled Axanar. Uh, funded independently of Paramount, who you know Paramount owns most of the audio video rights to, to Trek, and so Paramount sued uh, Axanar over a bunch of stuff, but among them the use of the Klingon language. But I think that was asserted in connection with the character copyright to the Klingon as sort of a, a stock character or a template character. Yep, and that is one of the big problems is that we start bumping into with language now the association of the language to a particular character. Mm -hmm. I think the problem we bump into is that it's usually not a single character; it's a race of characters. But it's a collection case, yeah. of characters. So yes, it's associated with the Klingon race, so to speak. I mean, now there are specific Klingon characters that obviously speak it. Um, but if you get into something, and this is where I think you get into something like Lord of the Rings, you know, that's it's a, it's a language of elves, which mm -hmm. there are a lot of elves in the Lord of the Rings. Um, so is it any particular character that it's associated with? Because many of the lines would be spoken by minor characters who may not be entitled to copyright. Yeah, and and you know, in the Axonar case, they they argued the same kind of stuff we've discussed here. They said language is useful and copyright can't function can't cover useful or functional things, only expressive things. They argued uh, fair use. But ultimately, that case settled, and Axonar basically just agreed that they would comply with Paramount's uh, guidelines for fan fiction, which, I don't know about you, I was surprised, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, given Trek's you know, fan community, yep. but I was a little surprised to find a large content owner that actually had a policy for fan yep. fiction, sort of tacitly approving that people can do it at all. I would say I'm not surprised by it. I, mean, I think a lot of the big content owners have have actually very well refined you know statements on exactly what can be done for fan fiction a number of them have also pretty much said no yeah you know there are have. specific the large companies out there that have said no we do not want any fan fiction we think it's damaging certain authors really do not like it mm -hmm. certain ones other ones are much more permissive and have sort of allowed the the fan community to go in it and that's it's interesting because those are out there at the same time one has to wonder how many fans can actually one locate that policy I'd never heard and, of it yeah and second understand it even if they can locate it I mean these are oftentimes very legalese very detailed contracts of what can and can't be done that sounds like an excellent question for our listeners to to ask us what, what that thing means. Uh, well, Speaking of yeah, questions, yeah, let's uh, let's let's move on to some. We actually have a ton of questions today from uh, from listeners, and I'm, and I also just want to mention I mean, this is a I think a question that we didn't necessarily get that deep into. We obviously may want to revisit this in the future. People want to hear us because there's just so many issues associated. There with really this. are. Like we we prepared about three pages of show notes, which is less than we usually do, and we got through about half of page two. So yeah, there's, if, there's a lot that, of material here we could we could talk about, but we're trying to keep these uh, these podcasts to to what we call commute length, at least in. St. Louis. It's probably more like trip to the grocery store length in certain parts <laughs> yes. of the country. If you're listening in LA, we feel for you. Yes, yes. You don't have to listen to like five podcasts to get to work. Um, so we have a bunch of questions today. These mostly came from uh, Facebook and, uh, and places like that. 
But we'll go through them. Uh, question from, uh, let's see, Brendan. He says, I love your podcast concept, and I hope you talk about modding eventually. Brendan, we will. Uh, <laughs> I think that's coming up in a couple episodes. Brendan says, anyway, you said last time that words and short phrases can't be copyrighted. Does that mean I can copy Cards Against Humanity? What do you think? Well, I think the answer is probably yes. You probably can copyright it. But I think this is the issue of what we get into. A short, the individual short phrase cannot necessarily be copyrighted. But as we mentioned earlier, a short phrase may be subject to copyright infringement if it's copied from a larger work. Yeah, so like the collection would be, right? Because like yep. some of those cards just say like Barack Obama on yep. them or something like that. Obviously, you can't copyright Barack Obama. Yep, I mean, I think it's a good example. But you may be able to infringe the Barack Obama card because it's yeah. a small portion of a relatively large collection of cards which is subject to copyright. Well, interestingly, Cards Against Humanity has pretty much solved this by licensing all the card content under some variety of the Creative Commons license. Yep. So you're free. I mean, don't. this isn't legal advice. Go read the contract. But in general, uh, you can, subject to that license, it generally says yep. you can go take their, their card copies and take it to the print shop and make your own, yep. and, which will cost you about as much as just buying it from them in the first place. Yep. So, And we've actually published a, a, an article talking a lot about you know, sort of copyright in gaming uh, content yeah. and stuff like that, where a lot of the solutions that have actually been done by these content creators are to do creative licensing mechanisms that basically allow fans to do certain things that they've said, no, we don't, this doesn't bother us. So now okay to Paramount's fan fiction policy. Yep. This is the stuff we'll, we're going to just let you do. Okay, next question from Mary in St. Louis. Hi, Ben. Excited to hear about your new podcast. Question, or I guess more of a topic, I think would be interesting, how people can clone games and the difference between IP and game mechanics. Uh, this is a good one, and this is going to be a whole separate episode. Yep. Uh, the short version is game mechanics are really hard to protect. Patents about your only yep. real option. But we're going to dive into that in, I think, two episodes or Remember so. that idea expression dichotomy we mentioned? A game a game rule is oftentimes considered an idea. Yes. The method for playing poker is an idea, not an expression, even though the specific game may show an expression code, of right. rules. So I think that's what we're going to get into and talk a lot about that. Next question from Mike S. from Facebook. What limitations are placed on fan art and IP, specifically related to reproductions of art, as well as unique works of art based on the IP? Uh, I followed up with Mike on this. So what he wants to know is two, two questions. One, if you're an amateur, say, painter or graphic artist, can you from scratch reproduce your own take on uh, an existing work of, of fantasy art say or if you've read a book and you want to imagine a character from it can you uh, just paint a picture of that character yeah uh, I think this is also a whole, a whole separate This is a whole episode, and I mean, I think the first thing we get into is the fact that reproducing art is taught in art school. Now, they obviously yeah. do things for, you know, things that have copyrights have long expired. They're in museums, you yeah, know. Yeah, there's a reason why you're painting old stuff. years old, but you're obviously designed to copy techniques, and a lot of times you're copying art not to copy the art, but to copy the technique. We're getting into that XD expression dichotomy again. We mm -hmm. seem to be the, 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 talking a lot about that, but well, yeah, the this is definitely going to be future. It, it says you're not allowed to make reproductions, right? It's not just yep. making a literal copy, it's reproducing producing the same work. It's not enough to say I'm just going to retype all the Harry Potter from scratch on my on my computer. You still infringe the copyright, even and which yep. is why nobody does that. So, um, but yeah, that's a whole separate episode. We'll get into that. Uh, next question from Hagana, also on Facebook: Would the Second Amendment apply to blasters and phasers? Another whole separate episode. We, we, we actually, love this question. Yeah, we want to um, do this one. And, and basically, the idea behind this is, what is a firearm? Um, and I think that's the, the sort of question in it, or what is you know a, an arm in conjunction with the Second Amendment? So this, uh, we're going to do a whole episode on this because, one, we just think it's a fascinating question, and it's, it's going to be lots of fun. I don't know. Last question comes to us from uh, another... Oh, I'm sorry. The first question was from Dave in St. Louis. This one's from Brendan. Brendan in Vancouver. Uh, hello, Canada. If you've ever been to a con, you know there are cosplayers there, and they usually make something based on a movie or a game. Isn't that fair use? 
If it isn't, then how come nobody gets sued over it? Well, I think we're looking at a whole nother episode, and I think we're actually looking at our next episode. Uh, yeah, we like this idea for a topic, because um, co- cosplay, so if you don't know, cosplay is what Brett Brennan said, people who make costumes. Um, sometimes they are recognizable characters. Have you, been, have you ever been to Archon over in the East, uh, over yeah. in Illinois? Yeah, a number of years ago. Yeah, I haven't been there in a while, but Archon is basically a, a, a sci-fi fantasy convention uh, for the St. Louis metro area. And uh, there's a the first night. There's usually like a, a masquerade ball type mm-hmm. thing, and there are some amazing and fascinating costumes. So yep. uh, we we do know this area a little bit. Uh, our next episode, Brendan, we're going to get into this in some more detail. Uh, it's it's a great topic, and uh, you're you're on the right track. Fair use is probably where you'd go with it, but kind of as we hinted with the painting thing, you're still making a reproduction of something that's probably copyrighted. Yep. So uh, it is probably going to boil down to whether it's fair use or not. But we'll dive into that uh, next time. Uh, so, Kirk, I think that's all we got for today. Yep, that's everything for today. And until next time, we'll talk to you later. All right. So if you have a question, you can ask us uh, on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page. Search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. We'll try and throw a link to that into our show. Uh, if you like what you hear, give us a review. We really appreciate that. It helps other people find us. Uh, five stars, two stars, however many stars you think we deserve. And uh, like well, we if said, you think we deserve five stars, put five stars. If you think we deserve two stars, still give us five stars. Still give us five stars. We won't tell. Um, so uh, that's it. Uh, next time, we're going to talk about cosplay. So thank you, Brendan, and Vancouver for the idea. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 